Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College, Tullis, Maryland. Uh, we're back with Shiloh Brooks. Hey, Shiloh. Hey, how's it going? Uh, and we're continuing our journey through the education of Cyrus, currently on book four for today's pod. Jeff's going to do a brief introduction and Shiloh's going to start us off with an opening question. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, before we got started here, Shiloh said it was going to be a challenge to uh, give an overview of this book, and it's true. Uh, there are six chapters in this book, and a whole variety of things happen. Uh, as you recall, uh, the end of book three, um, Cyrus and his military had just defeated the Assyrians, but it was a strange kind of victory. It depended on a retreat at the decisive moment, lest they get caught inside the fortifications of the Assyrians and their smaller numbers uh, be destroyed. Uh, so they retreat at the right time. The Assyrians won't come out and fight them again, and uh, they camp overnight. When they wake up, the Assyrians are gone. So that's how book four starts. Um, and it begins with Cyrus wishing that he had cavalry under his command so he could chase the fleeing Assyrians. By the end of book four, Cyrus has his cavalry in some form. He has Persians going to be on horseback. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and say that uh, the overview of book four is the introduction of cavalry into the uh, Persian military the Persian military in particular, because remember the allies, the Medians and these other allies, the Hyrcanians who come along in this book, they do have cavalry, but Cyrus wants his own cavalry. So that's one thing that kind of stretches over the book. He wants it at the beginning. He's got it by the end. And the other thing I just point to is he's got to do a lot of things to consolidate his hold on this enterprise. And part of the reason that this is required is because his mission is over, right? As soon as the Assyrians flee, uh, Cyrus, who was sent out to the Medians, defend Media and Persia against the Assyrians, he's done his job. And yet he keeps going. And so that keeping going seems to require that he attend to certain internal struggles uh, in his own uh, allied forces. And that's another thing he does in this book. So book four, Consolidation and Cavalry. Over to you, Shiloh. Yeah, so um, that's a, a very adequate overview. And I like very much the way you said that the mission is complete in a way in book four. Um, this calls to mind a question that um, I've been harping on since book one, which is why is the title The Education of Cyrus? The book now should have ended twice should have ended after book one when the education of Cyrus had been relayed. And now it should be over again because uh, Cyrus's mission is complete. Yet the book continues and apparently Cyrus's education is somehow continuing. So just in the background for people listening, uh, continue to think about what is the education of Cyrus? How is that unfolding even today, even now that the mission is complete? So um, that's just in the background, but with respect to book four, I, I always call book four a kind of transition book because, as you point out, it's, it's, it's in a way a transition. The mission is complete. The defensive mission is complete. But now Cyrus, he, he began to do this uh, in book three, but now it really kicks it into gear. Um, there's a transition to some sort of offensive mission, a grand offensive mission, um, much grander than, than the defensive mission was. And so what appears to be happening in book four is that Cyrus is 
taking more concrete steps, as you put it, at consolidation for the sake of establishing empire. And I think that today it would be useful for us to look through chapters one through six of book four and think through how some of these odd things, um, the acquisition of horses, um, the, uh, the acquisition of the Hyrcanians as, um, as allies, um, him telling the people that he conquers to stay put um, is very interesting. Um, all, all of these things are not um, uh, symptomatic of someone who's on the move. They're symptomatic of someone who's trying to leave something secure behind him as he continues to go forward. And what's he trying to leave behind him? Empire. So we should think about two questions. One, how does he create an established empire? But the deeper question is, why does he want empire? He was never told that he should want, uh, that he should go establish an empire. The Persian laws certainly weren't laws that are fit for an empire. So what in him wants uh, empire? Where did that impulse or desire come from? And what does it mean? I think I'd like to take a, a little bit of a stab at the second question, because as I was reading through this book, and in terms of also the education piece that we're talking about, I think we see more clearly some consistent patterns that Cyrus has just, you know, in his kit that he pulls out and it just works, right? And every time he does it, it seems to work. And that's not only his kind of tactical decisions about when to attack and when to retreat, um, but, you know, just that his judgments are always paying off. You know, we talked a little bit about this in terms of risk and fear and moderation in the last pod. But it seems like whatever he's doing, it's working, right? And I think that's a big key thing because there's a, a wonderful quote. I forget the name. It was a Marine colonel, but, um, you know, he basically said that war is the ultimate test of a military success and everything else is just advertising. Uh, and so Cyrus is, you know, not even needing to advertise because everything he's doing is just working. But then he's got a couple of things that uh, you know, he just keeps doing. And one of those that I think is going to be big uh, later on is that, you know, he continues to contradict Xerxes, And we see some, you know, blowback in this uh, chapter around that. But, you know, the first thing that he opens with is talking about how great Chrysantes is, right? And this is, this is the guy we talked about in the last pod about, you know, Chrysantes, you know, saying, oh, I'm slow. I'm not that great with a knife. And, you know, this book opens with, uh, Cyrus talking about, as for the captains nearest me, Chrysantis, I do not need to inquire anything from others, but I myself know how he was, for he did the other things that I am sure you all did as well. Well, if he, if everybody did it, why is he singling out Chrysantis? Um, and then a couple just kind of little, well, not so little is, uh, you know, he always, Cyrus always rewards his allies first. You know, as soon as you come over to, you know, Team Cyrus, like the, the world is yours, you know, and he's going to treat you well, whether it's giving, making sure you have dinner or making sure you have plunder or whatever it is. And they can just keep working. And the other thing is he keeps the merchants happy, right? We also see this in this book where he says, don't mess with the merchants. If they want to set up a marketplace, go for it. It's the same thing he did with the Armenians. So in terms of, you know, why is he trying to do, trying to create an empire? I would, I'd like to posit and I'll rely on, uh, another classical work, which is uh, the film Gross Point Blank, where <laughs> John Cusack is trying to explain to his high school girlfriend during their 10-year high school reunion why he disappeared and what he was doing. And he said, well, I joined the army 
And then I went to CIA and then I got farmed out as a hitman. And the reason that I'm doing at it, doing it is because I'm good at it. And so I wonder how much Cyrus in kind of applying the things that he thinks he knows and seeing the success of it just goes, I'm really good at this. So I might as well just keep doing it. Yeah, I like it. There are two principles in there, at least, that I heard, and they're going to get us started well. Yeah, so I'm good at it, um, I guess, means that I have the abilities, right? And I deserve what fits these abilities. So to move out of John Cusack and back to that story that Cyrus tells in book one, right? This is the cloak again, right? If we're not dealing with physical size, but some other ability, what fits that ability? And it's the thing that fits it, Asia, right? Only Asia fits uh, his abilities at this. So there's one, one possibility, right? That there's a kind of pull that is based on Cyrus's sense of what he deserves. And then the other thing I thought you mentioned, Brian, was a kind of push. Cyrus likes to give people stuff. Well, it turns out that if you do a lot of giving, you can try this out at home. You'll sooner or later run out of stuff. And so if you're a giver, if you especially like to give surprising, magnificent things that people haven't seen before, the biggest or the best or the greatest thing, acquire a lot of things. So maybe there's another reason why we need empire, because the logic of Cyrus's generosity just requires him to take stuff in order to give. So what do we think of those two motives? Those are at least a couple possibilities in there. They seem compatible to me. In other words, we don't have to choose one or the other. Um, he does seem to think that only the known world is fitting for him. This, this calls back um, to the question uh, that we talked about last time of Cyrus's moderation and whether somehow he's been miseducated or not educated Socratically in the sense that uh, to, to, say, to look at yourself in the mirror every morning and say, the only thing that fits me is the entire world. That's not moderate. And to say, not only is the only thing that fits me the entire world, but everyone in it should see me as their father and their God, uh, their, their mortal God, and these kinds of things. That's, that's what he, I mean, I, I agree with what Brian said, that he's good at it, he can do it, and he wants to discharge strength, uh, and, and this is in him to be discharged. But on the other hand, um, that discharge of strength could I mean, while it'll lead him to certainly a great deal of glory um, over the over the long haul, it's not clear that he really knows that he wants this, that he's really aware of what he wants. It could be that he's good at it, so he's going through the motions. I hear athletes all the time say, you know, uh, when they get into their 40s, they were really good at football or basketball, and now they have to retire, but they were really good at it. And then now they have to do something else, but they've never really known what else they should do because they've never really thought about the purpose of their life outside of football. And they have this kind of existential crisis where they were good at the thing and their coaches and their parents and everyone told them. And now they're like, well, now what do I do? There's a sense in which Cyrus is, um, uh, is guilty of that. So this could be another way, another pointer in the direction of his education um, or miseducation. Oh, well, in, and it's interesting because Cyrus seems to be aware of this education, right? And I'm looking at chapter two um, around line 45. And this is talking about how the allies actually get first dibs on plunder, right? So at this point, um, he's got the Medians, he's got the, Her the Hyrcanians have already um, 
you know, defected against the Assyrians. Uh, he's got Tigranes, uh, the Armenian with him. And, you know, he's basically telling his troops like, hey, uh, these guys eat first, right? They're out still fighting. We've kind of secured the perimeter. So when they come back, like they eat first. And so he has this line of 45. I think that even at home, we practice being superior to our stomachs and untimely gains so that we would be able to t make advantageous use of this restraint if ever it should be needed. I do not see that we could display our education on an, on an occasion greater than that now present. So he's coming back to that education that we've talked about as well, this ascetic. And I remember I re-listened I re to <laughs> our, our, our book three pod and I kept saying aesthetic. So ascetic is what I was going for. Um, but he's now displaying this ascetic education that he had as a, as a Persian nobleman in saying like, I don't need to eat. I don't need to, you know, do anything bodily um, because what I'm doing right now is more important than that. And I think that him displaying that to, you know, these allied troops is again, solidifying that relationship that he has with the allies and they're continuing to see him be both merciful and just. And, you know, that, that obviously is part of the reason, at least, that the Harkanians defected is because they see, well, this guy is seemingly putting justice um, and mercy as a key part of his, you know, political platform. This seems like a better deal than I had with the Assyrian king who, whose son killed my, my son just because he was petty and angry. So it's, it seems like what, what, Cyrus does again and again is uh, align incentives for people. And I think that might fall apart with Cyaxerxes a little bit in this chapter, but I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about the, the Cyaxerxes Cyrus kind of uh, showdown that we're kind of leading up to here. Yeah, I think we should think about Cyaxerxes um, a little bit and about the argument he makes against pursuing the fleeing Assyrians right at the beginning of this book. Um, you know, uh, it's easy to say that on the one hand, Cyrus thinks he deserves the whole known world. And on the other hand, he seems to succeed at everything he does. It's easy to kind of infer from that, that there's a nice um, cooperation between his desires and his abilities. But that, I think, runs the risk of overlooking how risky some of these moves are. So what do you think about Cyaxerxes' argument? He basically says... Um, and there are details worth getting into, but I think the, the main argument is it's very dangerous to keep on rolling the dice. When events have worked out in your favor, it's easy to get intoxicated by your success and to try again. Instead, what we should do is we should hang back and enjoy our victory. Um, it's clearly connected with the thought that they've accomplished what they needed to. What's wrong with that argument? Why isn't that the smarter move at this point? Well, um, uh, as Machiavelli says of Moses, Cyrus, Romulus, and Theseus, they were men who uh, were men of virtue and also saw opportunity, you know, the slightest little thin slice of opportunity they could take and exploit. And this seems to me, I think you're right that there's something to be said for, for what Sykes already says. Um, on the other hand, Cyrus makes uh, some decent points, you know, um, no, now's our chance. Um, I, 
I don't know. I, I can't quite make sense of this, and maybe it's difficult to make sense of, and maybe we should, you mentioned there were some details, maybe we should crack into the details. Um, maybe we could, what we could do is look at what um, Cyrus and Syaxari say to one another there, and then look at the letter that Cyrus writes um, to Syaxari's, and when he treats him like his I don't know, stepchild who's not, you know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And this man is his elder, is his uncle, is a king. Cyrus is not even a king, by the way. Um, and Cyrus is like, look, you're an idiot and you should be grateful to me. And, you know, you're weak and pathetic, you know, and while you're having your good time and enjoying your victory, we're benefiting you. So maybe we could bring into um, dialogue Cyrus's viewpoint from the perspective of that letter with Cyrus Aris's from the... Um, when he says, no, let's just sit here and party. Can we, can we tee that off first with the, the initial conversation in chapter one between Cyaxerxes and yeah. Cyrus? So, you know, Cyrus, this is the end of chapter one. And they're talking about kind of what to do next, right? They, they see the Assyrians have um, run off, right? And the Persians have kind of, I think, taken over their camp at this point. Um, and Cyrus kind of wants to keep going, wants to keep pressing the attack, which is consistent with what we've seen with the Armenians and the Chaldeans and the initial fight of the Assyrians a little bit after a little bit of, um, you know, tactical pausing. Uh, he's like, let's go get him. And Cyaxerxes kind of hedges, right? And I, I, th I feel like there's more here um, kind of between the lines than we've potentially seen before because what's happened before this uh, passage right here is that Cyaxerxes usually says, here's what we should do. And then Cyrus kind of openly contradicts him. I don't, I wonder if Cyaxerxes is kind of feeling out <laughs> the situation um, and, and not giving clear direction because he knows whatever he does, Cyrus is going to contradict him. And so at the end uh, on line 18 in chapter one, where they're talking about um, what to do, he says, moreover, since I see the Medes enjoying themselves, I would not now wish to rouse them and compel them to go off in order to run risks, right? And so he's not saying he won't do it, and he's not saying he will do it. He's just kind of saying mm, there could be a downside. And Cyrus very fluidly just replies, but do not compel anyone. Rather, grant me those who are willing to follow along, right? So he's, so they're, they're in this new dynamic where Cyaxerxes is not saying, hey, we're going to do this. And Cyrus says, no, we should do this. Cyaxerxes is basically kind of going, it might not be a good idea, right? And I think that, and then Cyrus, you know, grabs a bunch of volunteers and a bunch of people follow him. Um, and Cyaxerxes kind of sees that, you know, especially when he wakes up the next morning drunk after the victory and there's nobody there because <laughs> everybody wanted to go hang out with Cyrus, that his like, you know, penultimate pinnacle of leadership position is kind of being threatened at this point. So I think that that's implicit in what we want to get to. If one of you wants to go over like Cyaxerxes' um, message to Cyrus, that, that that's, we want to understand that that's part of it before we get to the actual letter. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, and one important point, you mentioned that he, he allows Cyrus to, um, to call the people uh, who want to volunteer to go with him to go with him. Cyrus relies on the boy whom he kissed and cried in the earlier book. And it would be interesting to think about why Cyrus would say to that person, you loved me before, now go and speak on my behalf. What, that's such a clever thing to do. I mean, 
if I needed someone to sing my virtues to all the people at the university, I would pick my wife. Because, you know, it's to say, I, she knows me, she loves me, she's, un, she's like totally willing to look over all my flaws and just sort of say, he's the greatest there's ever been, you should do this. And so, you know, Cyrus picks this person very cleverly who is going to go and be like, he's just about who, who's deeply in love with him. And it's going to say, you should all be in love with him too. So I just point this out uh, as a side note. Well, I'd be happy to read Sayaksari's argument because I'm the old man of this bunch. And so it's fitting that I make the old man's argument. And then uh, one of you can read uh, the response uh, that Cyrus says at 19, section 19 of chapter one. And uh, if we want, we can even jump ahead then to read the letter to Sayaksari's and I'll take my beating with grace. Um, but first, uh, here is uh, book four, chapter one. Sayaksari's speaking, arguing against pursuing the fleeing uh, Assyrians. Cyrus, that of all human beings, you Persians, take the noblest care not to be insatiably disposed toward any single pleasure I know, both by seeing and by hearing. Yet it seems to me to be the most advantageous to be continent in the greatest pleasure. And what provides human beings with a greater pleasure than the good fortune that has now come to us? If then, when we enjoy good fortune, we guard it moderately, it would perhaps be within our power to grow old in happiness without risk. Yet if we are insatiable in this and try to pursue first one and then another instance of good fortune, watch out that we do not suffer what they say that many have suffered at sea to be unwilling on account of their good fortune to cease sailing until they perish. And they say that many chancing on one victory but desiring another throw away the first. For if our enemies fled because they were weaker than we, perhaps it would be safe also to pursue these weaker troops. But now bear in mind what a small fraction of them we have conquered, though all of us fought. The others did not fight. If we do not compel them to fight us, they will go away in ignorance both of us and of themselves because of their lack of learning and their softness. If they come to know that they will be running risks no less by going away than by standing fast, beware, lest we compel them to become good, even if they do not want to. For surely you do not desire to take their women and children more than they desire to save them. Consider that sows flee with their offspring whenever they are seen, even if there are many of them. But whenever someone hunts one of their offspring, the mother no longer flees, not even if she happens to be alone, but she charges the one who is trying to make the capture. And now they locked themselves up inside their fortifications and offered themselves to us to be counted out, so we fought with as many of them as we wished. If we go against them on the plain and they learn to oppose us in separate detachments, some right in our faces as just now, but others from the sides and still others from behind, watch out that each of us not need many hands and eyes. Moreover, since I see the Medes enjoying themselves, I would not now wish to rouse them and compel them to go off in order to run risks. And, oh, and Cyrus said in reply, but do not compel anyone, rather grant me those who are willing to follow along. And perhaps we would return bringing you and each of these friends of yours things with which you will all enjoy yourselves. We will not even pursue the main body of the enemy, for how would we catch them? 
but if we catch some part detached from the army or left behind, we will bring it back to you. Consider that when you asked, we traveled a long way to gratify you. So it is just that you now gratify us in return so that we may go home with something in our possession and that we all uh, look to your, and that we not all look to your treasury. Yeah, and Cyrus gives into this. So, so what do we think? I mean, it sounds like uh, Cyaxari's argument is pretty smart to me, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the more prudent course, but you know, th this is another pattern that I actually missed until and Shiloh read that last line, uh, and that we not all look to your treasury, right? So um, there's, yeah. there's a saying in uh, CIA land uh, called PT Bub, which is put the benefits up front, or PT Buff. Uh, and he does this again, and I have PT Buff written in my book somewhere. Um, he does this again in chapter four, uh, bah, 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 where he's trying to bring the Hyrcanians, uh, some more Hyrcanians into the fold. Uh, and he's trying to just kind of like talk to his captives there. And he says, uh, so, and this is, it's, it's, he kind of puts the benefits at the end, right? So it's not PT bub, it's kind of PTE where he says, so if you wish to obey in these matters, but others do not lead us to them so that you may rule over them, not they over you. So he kind of makes a logical argument and then says, oh, by the way, you'll benefit from this. And so we're seeing that same approach here with Cyaxerxes, which is like, hey, I'll just, you know, whoever wants to come can come. We won't go hey diddle diddle right up the middle and attack the main body. And oh, by the way, if we catch stuff, um, if we catch people and if we catch, you know, booty, then we won't rely on your treasury. So I just wanted to bring that out as another kind of education of Cyrus point that he's figuring out align incentives and you know put the benefits somewhere for whoever you're talking to. So let me suggest this one um, point of attack on Cyaxari's argument that I think follows along what Brian's indicating about um, weighing benefits and consequences in Cyrus's mind. Um, Saixaris uh, presupposes that you roll the dice when you get on the ship, and if you stay on land, you don't, right? That staying on land is safe. Getting on the ship is a risk. And so, you know, if you, if you don't want to drown, don't get on the ship. But maybe you're always rolling the dice, whether you get on the ship or whether you stay, right? And so translating it into Cyrus's situation Maybe chasing the uh, fleeing Assyrians is just as much of a risk as going back to Persia at this point, right? Hasn't he changed uh, the Persian way of life and the Persian army a great deal now? Like what would happen to those people if he went back? It's impossible to go back is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's an error in his, I mean, maybe this is, shows my uh, Machiavellian Cyrus um, you know, my prejudices and love of those two people. But I think there's an error in what, in Saxaris's account of what's happened. He says twice the term uh, good fortune. Um, he says, so he, he indicates that the cause of the victory has been the good fortune that has now come to us. And then he says again, when we enjoy good fortune, I would say that the cause of the victory is not good fortune. It's virtue, namely the virtue of Cyrus. And so, uh, Saxari seems to think, well, we got lucky, and so we shouldn't test it anymore. But I think Cyrus says, no, we didn't get lucky. I orchestrated this like a master maestro, and I can do it again on a bigger scale. 
uh, you know, and you have no access to the kind of human type that I am, who is able to see these kinds of things that you you can't see because you're inside your tent drinking and partying, which by the way, I would never do ever. That's inaccessible to me, Cyrus. And so I think that um, there's some blindness here. I mean, I grant that it's the prudent and moderate and sort of sensible thing. On the other hand, that's um, only true if the cause is really fortune. And I don't think, I mean, certainly it's partly fortune, um, but I don't think it's wholly or even for the most part fortune in the case of Cyrus. Well, do we want to kind of move on to the letters now that we've kind of established like this is the the point at which, you know, Xerxes and Cyrus have a bit of a break uh, in their kind of relationship dynamic. And then that break goes even further in yeah. uh, chapter five. Yeah, this is a very comical part of the book because you have to imagine Cyaxares being like, all right, Cyrus, yeah, take, say, take some people with you. Whatever, man, we're going to go have a good time. Y'all have a good night. And then he's having fun, and there's women, and he's drunk, and he blacks out in his tent, and he doesn't remember. And he wake, wakes up the next morning and walks out, and literally there is no one in his entire kingdom except crows, like, pecking at the ground and whoever's in the tent. And they've all gone. And so you, you have to imagine what this man felt and if it's true that leaders are erotic souls um, this man must certainly feel that his lover his people have left him for another and so he's just the utter crestfallen nature of of what he must feel to have his people robbed from him willingly overnight um, i just can't imagine so that's the kind of preface to this and so just to um in terms of the story he is so angry that he sends a messenger forward to cyrus and says give me my people back where did everybody go give me my people back i can't believe you did this and the wonderful thing about this is that cyrus is like oh a messenger from Cyaxares. give him some give him some treasure show him to a tent surround him with women and he and, and he and the, the the messenger's like this is great this is amazing this is you know and so cyrus not only takes all the people he also takes the messenger who's sent to complain and it, so it's just you know a, a testament to his nature but am, am i getting the timeline right here where you know so Cyaxerxes wakes up and sees that the camp's abandoned this is you know chapter five around you know book or lines eight through eleven and then sends the messenger to Cyrus. And the messenger goes out with some knights, tries to find him. Uh, but then he's not let in the camp because they find him at night and Cyrus is commanded that no one be allowed into the camp until daybreak, right? In or out. Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, this is around line 14. Uh, when they were at the camp, the guards, just as Cyrus had orders, did not let them in before day. When day appeared, Cyrus first called the Magi and commanded they select what was customary for the gods on the occasion of such, such successes. So while they were busy with this, he called the peers together and said, um, he basically said, go get more troops. Uh, go get more Persian troops. And I wonder if Cyrus knew that there was a messenger from Cyaxerxes, you know, kind of outside the camp waiting to get in. Uh, and also knew that like, man, why, where'd all these, where'd all these meads come from? You know, they all wanted to come party with us. And he goes, 
man, it'd be really nice if I had a lot of Persians with me right now, <laughs> because if, you know, Cyaxerxes messenger is not bringing good news of like, Hey, great job. Uh, it'd be really cool if I had a Persian army coming up from his rear, um, that I could rely upon if things go bad. So I just bring that up as a, it's purely a hypothesis. There's no textual support for this whatsoever, but it would be interesting, um, to just think about that. And then we get, you know, Cyaxerxes messenger appears, right. And delivers, delivers the message, right. And this is 18. Um, after he, after this, he called in the media, the Medes as well. And at the same time, the messenger sent from Cyaxerxes presented himself and in front of everyone, in front of everyone, he reported both his anger against Cyrus and his threats against the Medes. Um, and so Cyrus is kind of dealing with this and then it's super interesting because, so the messenger delivers this message in front of everybody that Cyaxerxes is pissed off and Cyrus replies in front of the Medes and the Persians. And it's a very interesting response at 20. Cyrus said, but I do not wonder at all messenger and Medes. If Cyaxerxes having then seen many enemies and not knowing how we are faring has misgivings both about us and about himself. Yet when he perceives that many of the enemy have been destroyed and that all have been driven away, he will first of all stop being afraid. And then he will recognize that now he is not alone since his friends have been destroying his enemies. That's some interesting shade to throw at you know, the <laughs> notional, you know, uh, commander in chief that, you know, he is afraid. But he also gives him this diplomatic out, which, oh, he doesn't know what's going on. So it's natural for him to be afraid. But this kind of like public repartee back and forth, you know, we talked about the Lance Corporal Mafia in a, in a previous podcast that he, I think in some ways he might be sending, a, you know, a message through the troops um, and putting some doubt in the Meads minds as to, you know, who should really be in charge here because he's like, yeah, your boss is afraid. I'm out here hooking and jabbing and your guy is a little upset because he got drunk last night and he's a little scared because he doesn't have troops with him. So I might be reading too much into it, but this is what's going through my brain as we're reading this. It sounds to me like the things going through your brain are exactly what's going through Xenophon's brain as he's writing this, right? That Cyrus is, is um, there's some risk here, I think, for Cyrus that the Medes will say, oh, hell, what are we doing with this guy? You know, we're supposed to be under Cyaxerxes' command, and now he's mad at us. We're in trouble. And Cyrus is very deftly turning this in the ways that you point out. He also claims in the immediate sequel from where you read that uh, the Medes were ordered by Cyaxares <laughs> to go and fight with him when that is not <laughs> what was said. And then he goes back to the fear. I know he'll stop being angry when he uh, stops being afraid. <laughs> yeah. And your point about uh, the Persians coming up from the rear is also true because he keep, well, as I mentioned a moment ago, he says, show the messenger to a tent, uh, wine and dine him. And then Cyrus sends his own messenger with the letter to Cyaxares. And in the letter, he says to him, there, there's going to be a Persian army and they're going to be coming through. And if you need them, you can use them. Um, but they're going to be coming. And that, that is, as you say, that's just a kind of, there's also a Persian army coming up behind you. If you need them, you can use them. Have at them. You're, you're, they're yours. But, you know, they're coming up behind you. I mean, you know, you can, you can see the any, cleverness. Yeah, and he also sets reinforcements with him as well, right? Because before he even responds to Cyaxerxes, and this is an interesting uh, passage to follow this kind of train of thought that we're doing, you know, he talks to the Hyrcanians. And, you know, he said after, after he kind of responded in public to Cyaxerxes, you know, kind of rebuke, he, you know, he says, he, this is 23, 
When he had done this, the Hyrcanian came back and Cyrus said, Hyrcanian, I am pleased when I perceive that you are here, not only displaying your friendship, but you also seem to me to have acumen. And now it is clear that for us, the very same things are advantageous. For the Assyrians are my enemies, and now they are even more hostile to you than to me. So, any so this is another pattern um, where he compliments the people that he just conquers, right? And he does this in chapter four as well. Um, and in, in interrogation land, this is called uh, peony up, which means pride and ego up. So, if you're doing an interrogation and you have somebody that um, you know maybe a, like a high-ranking member of the you know military that you just defeated and captured, you know, you, you use a peony up, right? You say, oh man, you guys did so good. I don't know how we won this. Like you guys are you're so brilliant. You're so smart and you play to their ego. And he, excuse me, he does this in the beginning of chapter four, um, where he, da, 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 where he's talking to the Median and the, and the Hyrcanian cavalry. Uh, uh, after, I'll just read it a little quick part. After this, he asked them how far they rode and whether the land was inhabited. They said they had ridden a long way and it was all inhabited and then it was full of sheep, goats, cattle, horses, grain, and everything good. Um, why did I write peony up here? He's complimenting them <laughs> in here. And then he does the same thing in this kind of passage to the Hyrcanian. And, I, and also there's a bit of an implied threat here that it's like, if you don't join me, you're going to have to fight the rest of the Assyrians who you just defected from and are really not going to like you very much. So he's reinforcing kind of his rear by bringing a Persian army up and he's reinforcing his existing forces because he's got Medeans all, he's got Medes all over the place and he's got his Persians, but he doesn't have a ton of Persians. So he's like, how can I, you know, get a little bit more uh, men to be able to, you know, at least impose uh, or at least seem imposing than I am right now. And then once he gets that locked up, then he responds to Cyaxerxes. Once the Hyrcanians are like, yeah, that makes sense. Then he's like, okay, now I will draft my response to Cyaxerxes. So, I mean, what do, what do you guys, am I, am I extrapolating too much here? Or does this seem like we're getting closer to what maybe the inner workings of Cyrus uh, and what he's thinking is? Yeah, I think I think we are. And I, I mean, tactically, what you say makes sense. And then what Jeff says morally, I mean, what Jeff said, for example, about um, Cyrus just tells a bold-faced lie. He says, we ordered, uh, he ordered you to come. That's a lie. So now we know that Cyrus is, in addition to being a tactical genius in the way that you say, is willing to just bold-faced lie. I would point out another place where he does something morally questionable. The Hyrcanians revolt from the Assyrians. But in the previous book, Two books ago, Cyrus deemed it very unjust for the Armenians to revolt from the Medes. And so he went after them because he says, Armenian king, you revolted from us. That's very unjust. You Armenians should not revolt from the Medes. Here, uh, he says to the Hyrcanians, they, uh, Xenophon delicately says the Hyrcanians thought it was noble to revolt from the Assyrians. And they heard that Cyrus thought this was just for them to revolt from the Assyrians. So it's not clear what Cyrus thinks of people who revolt. He will soon be in the seat of, of emperor. Uh, I suspect at that point, he won't judge it noble for anyone anywhere to revolt. But he's, I, I just point this out as a kind of summation of, of Brian's point and Jeff's point that he's, he's got this uh, on the ground tactical genius that is complemented by a kind of moral, um, fluidity, but uh, as Brian points out, a capacity to flatter and rhetorically uh, ease things into very small crevices and these kinds of things. 
Maybe just one more detail to add to the details we're amassing about what's on Cyrus's mind. Um, the way he gets that Persian army that is coming up to reinforce the rear and to keep Cyaxerxes on law, and those are nominally under his command, is he sent a uh, message to the, to the Persians saying, if you want to rule Asia, send another army. Yeah. Right, and that's just astonishing. Not only yeah. does he have this hope in his head, he's fessed up to it, and he did it to the Persians. Yeah, and I think what should be going on in the head of any concerned reader is what his father must think. In other words, Cambyses is still around and is still the king of the Persians and is still, uh, as, as I understand it, wise. Uh, he know he he must know he will soon know what Cyrus is doing, and at some point he and Cyrus will meet again. And who was the king of the Persians uh, at that point? And who, who is leading this show? And so not only, I mean, it's important for the readers to see, not only is Cyrus threatening the known world, he's threatening his father. He's, he's, he's overthrowing very slowly his own father, um, perhaps in a delicate and respectful way, but, and this will become infected and, and we'll see more, but uh, this is in the background. So let me shift gears here a little bit at the end to ask a really odd question. I mentioned consolidation, and we talked a lot about that. And I mentioned cavalry, and we talked a little bit about that. Can I ask you guys about uh, what strikes me as maybe the one of the weirder things in this book, which is um, Chrysanthus's discussion of the centaur, or centaur, I guess we say these days. So. Um, Here's how it comes up. Remember, Brian started us off by pointing out that one of the first things Cyrus does in this book is that he praises uh, Chrysanthus, his uh, trusty right-hand man, and, and uh, gives him a battlefield promotion to colonel. Well, it looks like this is maybe uh, advanced preparation for getting Chrysanthus' support for a decision that Cyrus has to make. These uh, Persian peers who are uh, first rate uh, phalanx fighters, first rate foot soldiers, are all going to get on horses. And uh, then the Persian infantry is going to be made up, and this just boggles the mind, of these good-looking slaves who were taken as prisoners. Uh, Cyrus is going to free them, dress them all up with a hand-to-hand combat weapon, short swords and shields, right, where all the great hand-to-hand fighters are going to get on horses and learn to be cavalry. Now, uh, why he does this is really interesting. That's a big question, but he gets support from Chrysanthus, and Chrysanthus gives this argument where he says, um, oh, we're going to be like Kentors, but we're going to be even better than Kentors, right? Those are the half-man, half-horses, because we can get off our horses. We're like, uh, this is in chapter three, we're like a centaur that can be divided and put together again. You guys have any idea about why this particular view is reported at such length and, and uh, what it contributes to the decision to um, make cavalry out of the Persians? Well, the, the, am I right that the cause of the need for cavalry, he says at some point, he, he's very concerned about them not being able to ride horses, the Persians, and he's concerned about relying on mercenaries for the horseback thing. So there come, there's this great moment where there's a, a battle that needs to be fought and the Persians have to like stay home and hang out at the house while everybody else goes out on horses and gets the job done. And he does not like that. And so he says, we're not self-sufficient. And this is of course for Machiavelli principle number one, that a, a ruler above all has to be self-sufficient. Don't depend 
on anyone else for anything as much as possible your own arms and virtue right have to be and so here cyrus sees that his arms are not adequate he can't depend on himself for his own arms so the the, the need for horses seems to be one self-sufficiency also if you're establishing empire um horses can run f much further than if you don't have horses. And so it, uh, you can see this is already a part of him being very clever and saying, look, we need to be able to cover long distances in case some stuff goes down. We're leaving all this stuff in our wake and telling him we'll come back and help him to maintain my empire. I need horses. I need jets. I need planes. So that's the cause. As for the centaur, it's a real puzzle other than it's interesting. I mean, uh, I don't, this may be reading too much into it, but it's interesting to me that Cyrus, Xenophon seems to be indicating here, or at least Chrysanthus, who doesn't realize it, that Cyrus is making animals of his men. In other words, he's corrupted them. He, we'll, we'll feed you, you can have all that you want, you can, uh, all the goods of war will be yours, and you can just um, uh, gratify your pleasures. And that's how we'll run this show. Well, that's how an animal lives. It's a, it's a distinctive feature of a human being that they can say, no, it's not good for me to eat the cake. Whereas a dog just says, I'm gonna eat that cake. If it falls on the ground, I'm eating it, I don't even care. And so there's this, Chrysanthus seems to wanna to have it both ways where he says, oh, well, we'll become animals, but not really, we can actually not be animals. And it's, I think, I wonder if Xenophon isn't prodding the reader to say, well, is it really so clear that you can have it both ways? I think there's also that allure um, you know, if you think about, all right, we're an infantry unit. We have walked from Persia all the way, you know, into Assyrian territory. My feet are tired. <laughs> um, so there's, there's a human element of um, not having to continue to be a grunt. And there's also, I think, you know, the allure of becoming a cavalryman for an infantryman I don't know, can be necessarily overstated. You're going to have some people that are just like, no, I'm a grunt. It's what I do. But, you know, becoming a cavalryman after, you know, fighting in a phalanx and fighting multiple battles, I mean, that's got to be the similar of like strapping a jet to your back. You know, so if you dangle, you know, to a foot soldier in the Persian army, hey, I'm going to hand you this jet. You could strap it to your back and fly around and just do crazy stuff. They're going to be like, that sounds awesome. So I think there's an appeal to the grunt level of, wait, so I don't have to like, you know, have my, take care of my feet and change my socks three times a day and um, carry all this gear all the time that chafes and rubs and, you know, causes me a ton of pain. And they also have an implicit understanding of how vulnerable infantry is to cavalry and would be like, oh, wait, so I just get to like run around and inflict this damage on folks and I don't have to walk anymore. Oh, sold. That sounds amazing. Yeah, the mention of the jetpack is really good, Brian, because I think there is also a technological point in here, right? That Chrysanthus is, is saying something like, um, yeah, I can put my phone down whenever I want, man. Like I can use it and then I can put it down and it's not going to change me. It's not like it's a part of my head or something. <laughs> but the truth is any human activity means not doing some other human activity, right? Riding on a horse means not training as an infantry fighter and not keeping the skills up. So even though it looks like you're not being turned into something different, you're making these choices and there's gonna be something you lose. And I think Cyrus is either unaware or maybe more probably aware but lying about the possible consequences of this new technology he's uh, foisting on his peers. Yeah, and so you know, we're getting to the end of time here. And so Shiloh, you mentioned the Susan woman. 
Oh yes. And um, I wanted to know, like, and we keep we keep kind of doing cliffhanger endings because Xenophon <laughs> sets us up for cliffhanger endings. Uh, so I wondered if you wanted to kind of tease the Susan woman a little bit. Um, sure, sure. Before we close up. There are two very valuable cliffhangers here. One should be uh, is the Susan woman who I mentioned in a moment. But in chapter six, a new character are, um, comes on the scene who we haven't seen before, named Gabrius, and he is a man who has been wronged by. Um, Cyrus uh, by the Assyrian king and so he's an Assyrian and he comes over to Cyrus and says I want to join you and Cyrus is like whoa this is great because he's actually a very rich man so watch for him because now Cyrus has people in his army who have a vendetta against the king and they're you know that that's going to matter a lot um, but the second small detail that occurs is that when the Assyrians are routed again and the cavalry rides back into the Persians because the Persians have to stay home they bring um, a number of treasures, and of course at this time women were considered to be just that, and um, they bring Cyrus what they say is the most beautiful woman in Asia. Um, and so they give, they give um, this is in chapter six, the Medes chose for Cyrus the most beautiful tent and the Susan woman, who is said to have been certainly the most beautiful woman in Asia, and the two best music girls. And just to, to uh, bring to a conclusion our, our uh, remarks on Cyaxares earlier. Secondly, they chose the second best for Cyaxares. <laughs> and so he's already, I mean, it's clear who's king here. Um, but this woman, uh, it's, it's, so first of all, we've talked uh, some about Cyrus being in love and he's in love with the boy who kisses him and cry and he cries. Now he's brought the most beautiful woman in the known world. And so you know, Xenophon leaves it here as a cliffhanger, but as we progress into book five, we're going to see her uh, come to the surface and consequently, in some in book six too, the um, theme of Eros come to the surface because Cyrus is now in a situation where he's been brought the most beautiful woman in the world. And what is he gonna do? Um, does he gonna love her? Is he not? I mean, what's he gonna do? So at any rate, I just want people to be aware of this tiny little detail, which will put quite a psychological thorn in the side of Cyrus and provide Xenophon with a platform to begin teaching an altogether Socratic lesson. Cool. All right. Well, thanks guys. That's, uh, that's book four in the books. So thanks Jeff. Thanks Shiloh. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you both. Uh, tune in next time for book five of The Education of Cyrus by Xenophon. Um, yeah, we're only 140 pages in so far, uh, plenty to go, but um, we will be reading uh, book five next time. So if you want to bone up on book five, check it out. And you can also check out more on combatandclassics.org. Thanks, guys. All right, take care, everyone.